everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We're going to talk about Milano Sanremo, which was last weekend won in fantastic fashion by Matthew Vanderpool. And then the Volta Catalunya, which is going on this week, seven stage race, totally insane. It seems like every stage is an uphill finish. Um, we have Remco Evanapol and Primoz Roglic battling head to head there. It's a bit of a preview of the Giro d'Italia. And then a few odds and ends at the end. So, Andrew, do you want to say a few words about your podcast before we get going? Choose the Hard Way is a podcast where my guests share stories about how hard things build stronger humans and the fun people have doing those hard things. This week, I have gravel, mixed surface professional Tobin Ordenblad from the Santa Cruz Hit Squad. No vowels in Hit Squad joins me on the podcast. We talk about his career, what's going on in the mixed surface community, the Lifetime Grand Prix, some of Keegan Swenson's pro setup tips, bleached hair, and more. So come over, check us out, choosethehardway.com. You can find Choose the Hard Way everywhere you listen and you can follow me or say hello on social media at Hardway Pod and reach way back in the archives to get that deep dive on the origins of Spencer. Yeah, I, I was a guest on the podcast. Uh, if, you, if you like this show, you'll probably be interested in that. So I would check it out. And yes, vowels are the enemy of the gravel scene. I've noticed this, that if you're anyone in gravel, you got to get vowels out of your name, out of your race name. Just get them out of my face. Yeah. And Dan Hughes, if you're listening, we're looking forward to being out at BWR Lawrence later this year. Would love to host a live show from Sunflower. Uh, so hit us up at Hardway Pod, or you can hit Spencer up at BTP Cycling on Twitter. Would love to hear from you. This is we'll not a there. joke. This is not, not, this is not a drill. And people who are close to Dan Hughes do listen to this podcast. So that is Dan, probably happening. Dan, do you hear us? <laughs> come we're coming to get you <laughs> no we should we should really do that that'd be fun but andrew milana san remo feels like it was 15 years ago at this point but you you texted a few thoughts to me after the race you think you you predicted the winner vanderpool i frankly did not i didn't see this coming uh, i thought he was kind of having a tough year turns out Torino Adriatico, he realized, does not matter. Don't do a 50-kilometer solo breakaway in the freezing cold like he did in 2021 and then be on the back foot for the next six six months because you're drained and tired. He just kind of smartly rode through Torino, and then he, I thought, was incredible uh, at San Remo. What would you think about it? He had a pretty good ride, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't uh, not a bad ride for Matthew Vanderpool. I did pick him. I wasn't sure how he was going to do what would happen with that Olympic back of his. But he definitely pulled through. He pulled through in a big way. And I definitely want to talk about how he pulled through after he let Wout Van Aert close that gap in the critical moment of the race. But one in pretty spectacular fashion. We haven't really talked about this, but I wonder, is there a beyond the Peloton view on legacy racers in professional cycling? Wait, what do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, three generations of pro cyclists. Oh, yeah. No, right? this is it's very cool. I think this is a beyond the Peloton podcast thing. I, I, I start getting like alerts that I have too many words in my in my newsletters. I, I can't be talking about whatever Matthew Vanderpool's grandfather's name is. Uh, I can't think of it at the moment. Raymond Poulador. Um, but no, this is crazy because Raymond Poulador, Vanderpool's grandfather, won Milano San Remo. Did his dad win it? 
Audrey Vanderpool? No. I don't think so, right? Um, no. No, he didn't win it. He just designs bespoke cyclocross courses for <laughs> his, his son. Happens his son that to happened him. to suit his son. <laughs> I mean, his your dad win. did that for you, right? It's you know, as yeah. his father did for him, and so on. Yeah, so that 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 was really cool. I didn't cover it in my in my newsletter, but pretty crazy to think about a grandfather winning a monument and then a grandson winning it. Um, I guess I don't really talk about it because I don't have much to say other than pretty cool. Yeah, not bad. I'm trying, I do have a subscription to outside to access their different suite of content properties. And right now, I don't know, I guess I, my cookies must've been reset. I can't get in to see Jim Cotton's Velo News article about Milan San Remo, which was an excellent article. Shout out. I can't shout remember. Out Jim. Yeah. Shout out Jim. Nice work. I'm, I can remember a few key stats off the top of my head. People have probably seen these flying around on Twitter, but I believe they averaged 40 kilometers an hour on the Poggio, which is pretty nuts. That's nuts. It's, it's, it's nuts. It's a shallow climb. It's not that shallow. That's 25 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, and I'm sure you all have seen some of the footage of the actual race, but also there is cell phone footage circulating of the moment that Matthew Vanderpool actually attacked. And goodness gracious, Spencer, he's riding quite fast at that moment yeah, in time. <laughs> I, I had the same takeaway from that footage. I actually thought the footage was really interesting. It gave me something. And for those who don't know, uh, Milano San Remo, like 300 kilometers along, goes from Milan to San Remo, which is by Nice on the coast. They don't do anything for like six hours. The last 45 minutes, they start to ride fast because the, there's the Tripressa. It's a longer, like 20-ish minute climb maybe. And then they ride into the final climb, which starts 9K from the finish, the Poggio. It's like a six-minute climb. Um, Vanderpool, Pogacar, Venart, Ghana just absolutely roast this thing. Vanderpool gets a small gap, three second gap at the top, and then powers doesn't even really use like the descent to open up a gap. He just kind of uses the power sections, which is really impressive and kind of easily powered away for the win. But when he attacked at the top, I thought it was really smart that he waited. You know, first of all, he goes over the Chapressa in first. I'm starting to think, oh no, here he goes. This is Vanderpool. The Vanderpool we all know and love. He's going to try to do a 30K solo breakaway and blow up spectacularly. No, he does not. Waits for the Poggio. But really smart like he's the last wheel so by the time he goes by the guy in the front it's he's going too fast to respond to um and as you say that roadside footage he looked fresh like he looked fast and i thought van art who was fourth in that group looked a little haggard in that in that video you know you watch that and you think he just did not have the same form that vanderpool did must have spent a bit of time on the volcano in the past few weeks he had an incredible ride and I wanted to talk to you, Spencer, as a former professional athlete yourself. I think part of what we saw there was what's so amazing about cycling and part of what I enjoy the most, those strategic moments where you have the prisoner's dilemma and somebody has to make that move and start closing that gap. And if your rival doesn't do it, you then have to do it. But if you do it and your rival sits on your wheel, and gets that free ride, then you're probably going to lose the race. But that was, that's what happened when Ghana and Pagachar were getting towards the summit. There was a slight gap. 
Wout then had to make that split second decision of, am I going to close the gap? Because he was the rider in front. Vanderpool was behind him. He did make the decision because if he hadn't, the race was over at that point. And there are so many different choose your own adventure potential outcomes of that situation. If you had Pogacar and, and Ghana up there, whether would Vanderpool have gotten across had Wout not jumped at that moment in time, would Wout have won if he had just waited another second because Vanderpool would have come around him? Like what would have gone down? Yeah, they should, they should rename the race prisoner's dilemma because that's essentially what Milano San Ramo is like. You don't, this is overly simplistic. You don't want to be the guy that attacks. You want to be the guy that attacks after the guy that attacks attacks. Like that's who always wins the race. So Pogacar, I was a little surprised that him and UAE just thought Pogacar C, Pogacar smash, and just try to ride everyone off the wheel on the Poggio. If I'm not misremembering, they tried to do that last year and it didn't work. You just, it's, it's not a hard enough climb to ride people that talented off your wheel. What you have to do is be like Vanderpool and be like, I'm going to sit back. I, they might ride away from me, but I'm just going to sit, be the last, be the ticket taker in this group and then hit them at the very top. Um, and that's how you win. You wonder though, yeah, why did Van Art, if Van Art doesn't close the gap, he loses the race if, Van, if Vanderpool also doesn't close the gap. But I, I ran this by someone who knows what they're talking about, who's inside the sport today, that is Vanderpool feeling the pressure more than Van, is Van Art feeling the pressure more than Vanderpool? Like, let's just imagine the scenarios are reversed and Van Art wins this race, Vanderpool gets third. Do you think there's as much criticism on Vanderpool as Van Art got? Like, it seems like every time Van Art doesn't win a race, it's like, oh, he sucks. He's the worst rider ever. They, they call him Wout Van Choke on Twitter. Like, everyone dunks on this guy. It feels like if Van Art, if Vanderpool doesn't win, it's just like, oh, he was, he looked good. He'll probably do better in the future. Like, do you feel like there's a, there's a differential in the pressure there? Because it's it probably Van Art's Belgian. Yeah, it all comes down to the sensations in the legs. <laughs> it did come down to the sensations. It did. It case. came down to the feelings, to the sensations. I don't know. Van Aert is very graceful in victory and defeat, typically. Vanderpool seems like the more emotional rider. He seems more easily rattled. I feel just my intuition is that he's going to have a shorter career than Wout. But yeah, we know that Wout is feeling a lot of pressure at home. There were articles in the offseason about people knocking on his door and trying to say hello to him at times that he didn't appreciate. So I think the pressure is substantial for both of them. I just get the feeling that Wout's a little, a little more grounded potentially. And he also did not ride off of an imaginary ramp at the Olympics and hurt his back. <laughs> but if, yeah, like, so Belgium cycling's like a religion, Holland, obviously still big, but it's more, in the culture, like I feel like professional cycling is not as followed closely as, as closely as it is in Belgium. Imagine if Van Art had ridden off the imaginary ramp, the guy might have had to retire. Like he might just be in witness protection because the Belgian media would have just crucified him for it. Like I feel like I could see the weight of the world on his shoulders when he was closing that gap on Saturday, thinking, I have to do this even though deep down, I know that I will regret it because my biggest rival is on my wheel. Yeah, I, I think the true test of this is going to be what we see happen at Flanders and Perry roubaix 
And uh, I mean, we know that there's a potentially a lot of tension within the Yumbo Visma team. Uh, so I don't know. I am curious to see what happens. I feel like it's expected at this point that Wout better win either Flanders or Perry Roubaix this year. And it's going to be tough with the setup on the team. Whereas Vanderpool doesn't have the same weight, I don't think, because of his previous victories. And I, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think is going to go down? Yeah, I do feel like it, you're right about the pressure. And so Vanderpool has three career monuments. Pogacar has three career monuments. They're tied for the most current monument wins in the Peloton. Benart has one. And he's a great Tour de France. Obviously, he's rides at the Tour, like we all know, we all love. That's not a great to have one monument win out of all the talent he has and all the goes he's had at it. That's not fantastic. So I do think he's feeling the pressure and Yumbo, who has a lot of good riders. Like I think tomorrow at E3, which is they call it the mini Flanders, um, essentially the same race, just 60K shorter. It's going to be interesting to watch to see what Yumbo does there. Like I think Dylan Van Barrel or Laporte or Christophe Laporte could win that race. Right. If that happens, I mean... I mean, I should say, I don't think Van Aert really cares if he wins E3 or not. He won it last year. Like, he needs another E3. Like, he needs a hole in the head. So, it's not going to make or break him. But, you know, what if Laporte looks fantastic and wins? Is he going to roll into next weekend at Flanders and think, I should be the leader on this team? Like, wow, Van Aert's a great rider, but he's not winning at the moment. So, I do think it gets complicated. Yeah, I don't think that Wout's going to be comfortable with a water carrier role in the Cobble Classics. And we should like, he won't, he won't have that. But (laughs) I think what the more realistic scenario is like Dylan Van Barl gets up the road at Flanders and then Wout's in a group behind and he's like, he has the question of what do I do here? Do I pull or do I just sit back and potentially let my teammate ride away with the win? I think he's going to be extremely disappointed if he does not win one of those races. This happened to actually reminds me a lot of Tour Hushovd in 2000, potentially 10. Um, he was, you know, great rider, kind of in a slump at the time. And his uh, teammate, got, his Johan Van Summeren, got in the breakaway at Paris Roubaix. Hushovd was like maybe on the best form I've ever seen him on. He looked fantastic and he couldn't, you know, he couldn't really close the gap down because his teammate was up the road. His teammate wins the race. Fantastic for the team. He was like visibly devastated and disappointed so you could see the same thing here all right let's go back to the poggio for a moment i'm looking at the photos from the race and i'm sure everyone who's a close fan of the sport and if you're listening to this you are marveled at seeing ghana the giant in a in an, this in unbelievable this, yeah, yeah yeah and i mean spencer we were texting about this if someone can think of a more elite more accomplished final selection in a race with better Palmares than the four riders who are in the finale for Milan San Remo. I would love to hear from you. But I mean, we had multiple cyclocross world championship victories represented. We had time trial world championship victories represented. We had Tour de France, a Tour de France winner, multiple monument winners. I just don't know if, if there's been a more stacked final selection in a race in recent memory. And then 
it almost was like uh, playing Street Fighter or something. It's like, um, you know, is the person with the staff going to defeat the person who can shoot <laughs> lightning bolts? Like, what's going to happen here? Right? Yeah, no, it was exactly like that. It was, I would say, this is going to sound like a diss to Ghana. I don't mean it as such, but it was the three best riders in the world, you know, Van Art, Vanderpool, Pogachar, plus Ghana, who maybe is the fourth. I don't know. Like, I, I, I was surprised. I'm a big fan of Ghana. I was still surprised by this ride. For him to stick on Pogacar's wheel in a climb like that means he was, he must have, I mean, Vanderpool averaged 564 watts for that five and a half minutes. So, Ghana's quite a bit bigger than Vanderpool. He must have put out over 600 watts average for that, which means his FTP is probably a little over 500 watts, which means really the sky's the limit for this guy. So maybe that is like the future or not the, the present of the sport riding away. You don't normally see that at Milan San Remo. So that was fun to see. Um, it's kind of, it's been a specialist race in the past. So yeah, to see these top guys all with different ways to win a race going against each other was really, really cool. I mean, also, what did you think of Ghana's sprint? I'm thinking this guy's going to get roasted. He's a time trialist. He can't sprint. And then he just kind of went into super Ghana mode and just went faster. And <laughs> Pagacha and Van Art tried to sprint against him and they couldn't even stay on his wheel. I was really blown away by that. It definitely left me wondering if we're seeing another one of those magical sky now Enios transformations of a legend of the boards, the track, the velodrome. Now, I mean, Ghana's done quite a bit on the road, but is he about to start to move in a completely different direction than we've seen him operate before? And again, Spencer, you and I were messaging about this. He looks noticeably leaner to me, as in he looks like he's lost a significant amount of muscle mass. And Van Aert, just looking at him looks a little bit bigger from a lean muscle mass point of view than when he's in absolute top condition. We know that he was, I believe he was sick in the weeks he leading up to this race. Like, I think the quote was weeks of training or at least a week, which is that's a long time to be off the bike at this time of year in professional cycling. Right. And I have to imagine maybe Van Aert is just naturally carries around more musculature until he really, really leans out, goes, goes into full shred mode, you know, really starts to cut down for the grand tour season. But yeah, he's looking, you know, kilo or two heavier than when he's in top form. I mean, tough to say from just looking at people, but compare photos of him now to during the tour, he does not look like he's in absolute top condition. Well, he definitely rides the tour lighter than he rides the classics. So. But he also, I mean, it could just be related to not, he probably has not trained as much as he has in years past because of that sickness um, and just the weirdness that doing cross does to your schedule. Right. Um, and if you're a guy with a lot of muscle mass, like even those cross efforts will, will bulk you up. It sounds crazy, but like just the high torque, high power cross explosion out of the corners will add muscle mass to your upper body um, if you do it enough. So you could be seeing a result of that. Just go out to Valmont on a Wednesday morning and have a look around and you'll know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you'll just see beefcakes out there just shredded. <laughs> yeah, Spencer, I wanted to go back to a, a comment that you made about UA's strategic decisions or perhaps lack of strategy at San Remo this year. Now, Pagachar noted that in 2022, he said he attacked four times on the Poggio 
and he decided to go all in on an attack this year. Did he have any other option to force the selection that needed to happen? Could he have let someone else make the decisive move or get in front and drill it? Or was everybody just marking off of him? I would have had Tim Wellens attack just like he did, but don't go with Tim Wellens. Tim Wellens was strong. You know, Tim Wellens, if no one marks him, he wins that race. So let your teammate go. Probably Van Art, probably Vanderpool are going after him. Let those guys go and then be behind them so you can be Vanderpool. So you can be where Vanderpool was when he attacked. I think that's how you win the race. You don't like even Nibali, if you remember in 20, yeah, that might have been 16, 17, something like that. He did an attack at the very top and got a gap. I think that's how you have to do it as a lighter rider like Pogacar. You can't be the one to go. And what was frustrating to watch is he didn't have to be because Tim Wellens was so strong. I thought Tim Wellens could have been the attacker, not Teddy Pogacar. That's, I was a little frustrated with their strategy there. And I thought it was just kind of running back the same thing that didn't work the year before. Yeah. The other thing that jumped out at me is Bahrain had six guys left after the Chapresa. So they had an all, you know, is that a fully intact team? I don't know how many riders they had in the race. Perhaps eight. I will check. Okay. Oh no, seven, seven, okay. right? Yeah. So that is almost the whole team. That's pre- I mean, that's pretty impressive. That's a very select group at that point in time. And yet they blew it. Well, you could say they blew it, but I mean, Matty Motoric, amazing he won last year. He gets eighth here this year. If we're being honest, that's pretty good for him. I mean, he's not a guy who can, he just can't hang with those top four if they're really, really going for it like they were. Just everything has to align perfectly for him. Maybe they should have, they could have tried something else. Maybe don't make it so fast because your guy needs it to be slow. You know, that, that would be my one quibble there that why were you making it so hard? for then UAE to attack off of and then put your own rider in trouble. Um, but they had limited, they really had, if we're being realistic, had limited options. Matty Motorich needs like many things to go right to win this race. Okay. And on the equipment front, I, it definitely jumped out of me that Matthew Vanderpool won without having his hoods rotated in. What did you make of that? Yeah. Classic hoods. Also massive hands. My Lord. Like I was like, you could like see from the helicopter shot. It looked like he had like big hands on. Like I was foam thing. You couldn't even see his hoods. <laughs> but I, and he seemed to be riding on the hoods a lot. I would say that's less arrow, but clearly it was the right decision. Whatever he did there was the right decision. Um, arrow gains be damned because he was flying on that on the pedal parts of that descent. Okay, so let's jump over to Catalonia. But before we do, I'm wondering how you're feeling about Pagachar's form at this point in the season, knowing that the big peak, after probably some more volcano time, is the tour. And I'm thinking about this in relation to what we're seeing go down at Catalonia. I mean, the main protagonists there are trying to peak for the Giro. So their form is a bit more advanced at this time of year, but man, Pagachar is flying. Wait, oh, Rimco Evanipol. Right. Yeah, Pagach. So wait, you asked a question back there. Is Felipe Gana the next Sky slash Ineos rider to go from the track to being awesome in on the road in whatever discipline he wants to? Yes, I think that's the case. 
I'm very excited for it. Um, Say more Rinko. about that. Say more about that. What do we? What could we potentially see him do? Because again, I, th- I know I we think- talked about this. Like, what could he end up doing at, at the tour? People laugh at me, but he could win the tour. I mean, with an FTP that high, like if think thinkly you're doing, he's doing 520 watts on a mountain pass, sitting about threshold. Like that's the pace that Mika Landa attacks at. You know, so he would just be destroying people, and like Pagachar and Vingegaard would just be able to. You know, maybe they could get a few seconds on him, but he's going to pull out time in a time trial. Like it would be a Miguel Indurain esque reign if he wanted to. I would caveat that with it's kind of a miserable life to be as skinny. Like Bradley Wiggins didn't seem like he was having fun. Um, and if you if you think this isn't possible, the fact that Bradley Wiggins did it without the raw power that Fleet Pagana has means it's probably possible possible for Ghana. But let's say he doesn't want to get super skinny. I think he could be a classics monster. Like, I think he could win Roubaix this year. If you can put out that much power for those short bursts, like, think of what he's going to do on the cobblestones, assuming he has the skill to navigate the cobblestones. Like, I think he could be a classics monster if he wants to be. Do you think Bernal's comeback or some of the chirping that we're hearing about Pidcock potentially becoming a Grand Tour contender are these like false flag type things? Is Ghana actually the? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Where, I, I is Enios <laughs> going all in on Ghana? And, you know, they're just kind of launching some salvos to make us think perhaps someone else will be the protagonist. I, I kind of think so. I feel like a conspiracy theorist in my basement, like ranting and raving. But yeah, it's like, don't pay attention to Bernal and Pickock. It's all about Ghana. It's all about the raw Watts, folks. But yeah, I do think that Bernal's days are behind him. Um, we'll talk about it. Catalonia, I mean, I know he's coming back from injury, but even if he ne- had never been injured, um, what we're seeing from Remco Evenepoel at this race, I think confirms that just the level is higher than it was in 2018 and 2019 when Bernal was probably at his career peak. Um, so at Catalonia, Remco Evenepoel is going head to head with Primoz Roglic. They're probably going to be the two best riders at the Giro d'Italia. So it's interesting to watch this to see how it shakes out. They just kind of do a mountaintop finish every day. So it's awesome to watch and you don't have to watch anything but the final mountain. Um, Evenepoel's just flying. Like Primoz Roglic is probably the best I've ever seen at winning uphill sprints or like mountaintop finishes. And he did something I've never seen done yesterday. He gapped Primoz Roglic on a mountaintop sprint. I might be a Remco Evenepoel believer now. I mean, that was kind of unbelievable. What did you think about that? Well, I think that it was an unbelievable ride. And as has been widely noted on Twitter and elsewhere, it also displayed a lack of tactical awareness because he could have easily gotten another second and gone into the leader's jersey. Oh my. He sat up and celebrated. Yeah, if you didn't watch, he sat up. And it's a tied stage race, a tied time stage race. It's, It's kind of an unbelievable mistake. A very immature move versus Roglic, who just seems like he's in kill mode once he <laughs> gets within yeah. a kilometer of a mountaintop finish. Man, that guy does not make one wrong move. And yes, he did get capped off yesterday, uh, as is typical of Eurosport. And I, I feel weird complaining about this because I do remember in the late 80s, you know, having to wait and pray that there would be 30 minutes of John Tish, Tish uh Tour de France on a Saturday on NBC. And now I feel kind of spoiled because we can watch multiple bike races per day wherever we are in the world, which is awesome. 
But wow, Eurosport, they just have this knack for cutting away at the absolute wrong moment. So you can't tell what happens. You know, yesterday they changed camera angles right as Evanapol went around the corner. Roglic got gapped off, but it wasn't clear. Did he take the line wrong? Did he lose power? Like what happened there? Well, just to be fair, so Eurosport doesn't control those cuts. It's like the race organizer. So that's why you see. Don't, don't be know. a Eurosport apologist, Spencer. <laughs> that's they why you'll see like in an Italian race, some no-name Italian riders being dropped and they're focusing on him. And then there's like a tax going on at the front. This happens all the time. It's like, what are we doing? Just show me the front of the race. The same thing happened at Sam Remo. We didn't even see Vanderpool attack, Vanderpool attack because we were right. focused on some group behind. But yeah, it, after after having like 24 hours to digest that stage, I do wonder if Roglic was just on the limit. And maybe maybe it wasn't even a tactical mistake. Maybe just it kind of finally showed us the gap when they took the turn that he was you know, losing speed to Evanapol. And then Evanapol stupidly slows down in the straightaway, which is why the gap never changed uh, distance from the turn to the finish line. And there was so much going on in those final few kilometers for anybody who missed i think that remco flicked his elbow and tried to get primos to pull <laughs> yeah, through like why would More, this guy pull through? like <laughs> it was almost like he was in a like a a cat four or five 40 exactly. plus race in a in a parking lot uh, or office park somewhere in southern california it was it was very bizarre did he have any expectation do you think spencer that roglich would just be jostled and think you know i was going to sit on this guy's wheel and try to kick his ass but Fuck it. I'm gonna I think I'm gonna pull through. <laughs> I guess it never hurts to ask, but <laughs> at the time I was thinking, yeah, this shows that maybe he's not quite there from a tactics point of view. Like that's to ask its competitor like that to pull through at that moment makes no sense whatsoever. Um it sounds petty and like I'm nitpicking, but it did make me think there might be a lot of meat on the bone here for Ruglic to kind of chew off over the course of three weeks in Italy. Um, this guy might not know the nuances of bike racing quite like Primus Roglic does. I'd have to go back and watch it again. I think it was more than a dozen attempts to yeah. uh, to get Roglic to pull through. Like, it was why very... would you pull through, man? We're, we're crushing everybody. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, there had to be some kind of power expenditure in that elbow movement at that moment in time, too. The other thing that I've noticed with uh, Evanapol... And I don't remember who his lead out person is off the top of my head. Oh, I think Do it's you? Il Ilnar Van Wilder. He's kind of, he's pretty good. He's like twenty one or twenty two, and they basically they seem to just rely on him for every lead out that Evanipol ever needs. Yeah, so these guys are they're ripping. They were very mispositioned, and I believe it was in stage two. Uh, they were really out of position for the sprint, which led to Evanipol having to move up way more positions than he should have had in the last, you know, K 500 meters. Something I noticed though, is these guys are in, I, I have to think that they're probably in custom speed shop or whatever skin suits. It costs three to $5,000. The only two riders that I spotted in the entire Peloton who were unzipped like early 2000 style were Remco and his lead out, man. Like they had, it's like, right? I'm like, what, what are you doing? No one else unzipped their jersey. It could be possible they, they might have like, I, my theory was they like gave him the wrong skin suits. Like, 
I wonder, you know, it's a tricky environment because it's coastal Spain, but it's not hot yet. Like, I wonder if they gave them kind of a thicker grade skin suit and then they were just dying. So they had to unzip them because I, I did think that was weird. They've done it multiple days in a row, though. Maybe they're just bringing back the style into the sport. They might have left them on Tenerife. Might have left the skin suits that fit on Tenerife. Or maybe they're trying something smaller. I don't know. Maybe it's an equipment experiment. Just struck me as struck me as kind of odd. Is anybody else jumping out at you as inordinately strong? Like, did Chicone's performance surprise you at all? No. I mean, that's kind of what Chicone does. I mean, that's the classic Chicone experience you're going to get when you sign him. Um, one one day a year, he'll pull that off, and you think, that's pretty good, man. Thanks. And he'll score a lot of points, and he's, he's probably actually great. He's probably one of the more like efficient riders for his the money he gets paid in the Peloton. So yeah, yeah he can do that every now and then. Actually, the thing that surprised me the most is just how bad everybody looks compared to Evan Apol and Roglic. And there's right. good riders here like Jai Henley, Joao Almeida, Mika Landa, Mike Woods. Esteban Chavez, Roman Bardet, Ben O'Connor, Mark Soler, Rigoberto yeah. Uran. These guys look like they're stuck in mud. Adam Yates. Like, it's not even close. That um, should tell you that when it comes time for Grand Tours and there's an Evanapol or a Roglic or a Pagachar on the start line, no one else is going to be close. I mean, this is, this is now a closed system. There, there's none of these guys that we know can challenge them. Yeah, and I know Sepkus is... Clearly, he's in a supporting role as a climber at this race. But every time he's in front, just signature Sepp Kuss, just kind of taking a look around. Looks very Just looking tranquil. around, yeah. What's going right? on up here? Looks yeah. relaxed. Just like taking it all in. Loves it. He's got to be just a good vibes guy. He's not, he's not too stressed. Yeah. Where, where are we? Does it really matter? Um, one thing I want to run by you is this did not jump out to me. I want to make sure I have this right. So... Richard Carapaz, I believe, was in the breakaway on stage three. Right. That's kind of weird, right? He was just, what, 12 months ago, an elite GC rider, and now he's chasing breakaways at races where he should be competing for the GC. Have we kind of seen the end of him as a GC rider? This is the discussion I wanted to get into around who is in the right form at the right time relative to the performances that we want to see in the Giro and in the Tour and for example, we know that Roglic has been a bit overcooked going into the Grand Tour season the past few years, kind of blows up at the end. So does it, looking at his performance right now, is Remco at another level or are we seeing him emerge as the Grand Tour, potential Grand Tour winner that multi-time Grand Tour winner that people believe he can be? Or is it the case that Roglic is actually timing his peak better. I tend to believe that. I mean, actually, Remco right now reminds me of Roglic in 2019, where he won, I think he won like four state straight stage races heading into the Giro. Right. And then he was really fatigued in the Giro. I mean, he barely held on for third in that final week. Right. You know, I could be wrong. I mean, maybe Remco just rips through the Giro, but I kind of think we're seeing just a little bit of miscalculation in I think that because Remco's young, he doesn't really know what he's doing from a Grand Tour perspective, and his team doesn't really know what they're doing. I mean, that team has not looked good this year. Actually, Remco and then Alaphilippe, oddly, who, who has issues of his own, kind of have saved the team, along with Fabio Jakobsen. I mean, they if you watch the 
Bruges Depana race yesterday. They put a rider, a rider that can't sprint, Islam Pair, ripped a bunch of sprinters off the front and then paced them away from his own sprinter, Fabio Jakobsen. And then he gets roasted in the sprint. Like, I don't know, that team, the fact that Rimko is doing this on that team doesn't give me a lot of confidence that they have a plan or that there's a lot of oversight. So I tend to think Roglic is actually stepping into this Giro pretty well this year. And Spencer, am I mistaken? Did Roglic just start debuting his telemark signature pose on the podium this year? Or has he been doing this in past years and I simply missed it? I think he's been doing it where he, he shoots out like a ski racer, like a ski jumper, like he's sticking a ski like jumping. He puts landing. his hands up. Oh, a ski. Yeah. A ski jump. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's been doing this for a while. I, I like, I love it. It reminds me of like a, uh, an Adam Sandler movie or something. There's something really delightful about seeing him just like, <laughs> <laughs> did you catch, um, the, this UAE nonsense. Are you have you been paying attention to this? Where Adam Yates out of the GC, Joao Meda, uh, bike stops working. I, I I immediately think of you. His derailleur just is not shifting. Probably wasn't charged. Um, Adam Yates just stays in the front group. No, nah, I'm not going to drop back, even though I'm ten minutes down on GC, and then is actually pacing away from Joao Meda. That team is is somewhat of a mess, and I I do wonder if it's going to rear its head again at the tour. You know, Pogacar is so good, he kind of papers over a lot of these problems when he's there, but it doesn't give me a lot of confidence that they've corrected anything from last year. Yeah, Spencer, I had this on my list of questions for you. And if anybody listening is not a paid subscriber to the Beyond the Peloton newsletter, you should do yourself a favor and subscribe today. Because Spencer, one of the things you covered in the newsletter was just this. I had the same thought. There were a lot of shenanigans going on back there and I'm not sure if we need to get this team together for a little more time on my whoosh or what but <laughs> yeah they seemed to they seemed quite a bit disorganized and very much like they were riding as a group of individuals who were self-interested it, I mean it reminded me of season one of the Amazon movie star documentary yeah and they did the same thing at the Volta last year where it it always looks like they just inter- they just met each other in a parking lot and they're like hey i'm adam i'm joao let's go race like they don't ever seem like they even know who each other are adam yates also it never really works for anybody right do you remember the 20 that was the 2021 tour where him and garrett thomas wanted to race for themselves and richard carapaz was on the podium like it's kind of the same pattern of behavior over and over and over again so maybe i shouldn't be shocked that he didn't drop back to pace his teammate yeah, Yates definitely feels he puts out that I'm on team all about Yates. me type of vibe, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I get that vibe from him. Not to say he's like a bad guy, but no, nah, he could he could be great. Maybe somebody you'd want to have a non-alcoholic beer with, or I don't know, go to a hot yoga class, whatever. But in the context of this race, there does seem to be a lack of harmony. Seems to be a bit of dissonance among that crew. Yeah, and. Did, so I don't know how much I should share, but did you see the Alan Piper is like a genius tactician, um, just Good, a really smart gone, guy, right? Yeah. Gone. He had cancer. So he kind of engineered Pogacar's 2021 tour win from the car. Um, unfortunately he got sick with cancer, had to step away. 
um, is doing better, wanted to come back and maybe a part-time role because the car was just too, too hard on his body. It lasted like a week and grumblings from sources close to the situation say the management kind of didn't want him there because he's close to Pogacar and they don't want to be pushed out of their current position by Pogacar in the future, you know, because not crazy to think a star rider starts to look around, think, is this team really that well run? Maybe I want my own guy in here who can do a good job. Like Lance brought Johan in to run postal because he was thinking, I don't think this team is that well run. I think the UA management might be afraid of that happening. You know, if we're at that if we're at that point, this team has some problems, um, and it really could show itself at the tour again. Yeah, it's going to be quite a showdown, and we'll see how well organized they are. We'll see if Pagachar misses any critical feeds. And so, do you know this guy, Sign Udenbrooks? Um, Patrick Bro brought him up when he was on the podcast, like back in, uh, God, when was that? Like back in January, December. 20-year-old on Bora, currently sitting in uh, right. ninth overall. Really, really impressive. Um, also, there's a lot of riders who, like even today in the sprint finish. So fourth is Eid Schelling. Never heard of this rider. Sixth is Frederick Wannengal. Frederick Wannendahl. It's just like a lot of riders that I never really heard of. Corbin Strong, who, who had a good tour down under, I believe, got third. Just like kind of a lot of talent out there, probably not getting paid a bunch, but getting really, really good results. It shows there's, if you wanted to start a team on a really shoestring budget with like one star and just a bunch of star riders around them, there's like fertile grounds out there for recruitment. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just cruising through the results here to see what else is jumping out at me. I mean, this is in a, in a different direction than what you just mentioned, but taking a look at... GC, we kind of talked about this a moment ago, but Jai Henley, who else have we got here? Jai Henley, Ben O'Connor. Are we going to see these writers do bigger things later in the year, or have we kind of seen their best? I, I think we'll see him again at some point. Maybe not. Ben O'Connor does get better as the year goes on. Jai Henley, I don't think he's ever gotten a result after the month of May. So Right. For Henley, it's kind of may or bust. I'm always hesitant to write Henley off because he had no semblance of form whatsoever going into the zero last year and then won it. So yeah, I'm I'm done saying this guy doesn't have it. Um, but he's probably just not at this point, we should just be comfortable with the fact he's not a writer, he's not a modern writer like Roglic or Evanapol or Pagachar who's just gonna dominate every stage race he's in. He's just gonna be okay top 10 and then he's going to pop off a good result every now and then right and looking at gc we talked about carapaz and his moment in the breakaway he is 12 minutes and 28 seconds down in the standings at 39th place and egan bernal at 16 13 down on the leaders at 52nd place likely not where these riders would like to be at this moment in the season i wonder if they're sick need more time on the volcano like not quite sure the thing i worry about carapaz is second year in a row this has happened you know he was you can you can be not prime fitness at the beginning of the year and still do well like jai henley last year but you like it's not the olden days you can't be 
really bad. Like Carapaz could not compete on uphill finishes until the Giro last year. It looked like it was going to work. And then we saw the holes in his fitness cost him in the end. Jai Henley kind of easily dropped them when he needed to and won the race. Like it just kind of, and then he comes into this season undercooked again, you know, and at's after of Welta where he was supposed to show up as the GC leader for his team, couldn't do it, won a bunch of stages, but you know, that's a different phase of his career. If we're talking about a guy who loses time and wins a bunch of stages, it's a little weird to me. It's like a concerning that he didn't really come into this season on great, great fitness again. He just kind of is continuing this slow roll which will net you if with his talent he can still get wins but you can't compete for a grand tour gc doing that in this in this modern racing day and age yeah and for anyone out there who has caught the movie star documentary feature i guess carapaz was in season one is that correct spencer yeah yeah i think maybe the more he's probably the most compelling part of that yeah entire series for me I was going to say, I mean, cycling, I think one of cycling's biggest challenges in terms of its broader mainstream appeal and storylines is that doesn't do a great job of telling the story of the characters. Carapaz seems like a really compelling, charismatic individual, which uh, there's not always an intersection with that and being the world's best at something you do. Yeah, so almost inverse. Uh, yeah, but I mean, he really seems to have like a great personality, interesting guy, definitely a killer is the sense that you get. I'm sure that he doesn't, I'm sure that he's not enjoying that uh, he is 12 minutes down right now. And I also would say he has one of the sharpest looking kits in the Peloton right now. And he also has those gold accents, right? In a much more understated way than we saw Greg Van Avermaet for so many years, but very tastefully done. Um, so yeah, I would, I would love to see Carapaz succeed later in the season, but at this point, I just fear like we're headed in, um, you know, like stage hunting mode, like a climbing stage at a grand tour here or there. And I mean, still that's something most writers would aspire to do once or a handful of times in their career. But for a writer with his talent, I really would like to see, him achieve his full potential yeah a lot of things to cover there i i agree looks fantastic the looks the damn good and the bike are incredible like yeah. cannondale is just showing up strong um and yeah it, it is a little i find it disappointing and mainly because i'm looking up his age he's only 29 years old like i don't think this is a physical he did not fall up a physical cliff like contador or nibali um Kind of feels like he just the lifestyle of being a Grand Tour contender wasn't for him, and now he's more of a stage hunter. Um, it's I, I'm struggling to find pre, to like remember precedent of someone who I think was in the first or second tier, like one of the only riders who could consistently stay up there with Pogacar and Vingegaard and Roglic, just to kind of punt it. I, I, this is going to be funny when he wins the Giro or something, but right. it's not looking like that's going to happen. You know, it's if he never returns to being a contender, the kind of a shocking fall off at a young age. Yeah, it could be. I mean, and to be fair, we also see this with some of the people who are at the very sharp end of the sport today. I would say it seems like Pidcock is the kind of writer who has on days, off days. His focus is there. It's not there. He's wants to have a lot of fun when he's doing what he's doing, which is great. But also that potentially means 
that he's not realizing his full potential and all the opportunities where he could be. It's just in the ones where he's having the most fun or whatever. Um, so yeah, I would like to, uh, I would like to see bigger things and I'm hoping that things open up this year. And as I'm thinking about what's going on with EF, I of course I'm thinking about Cape Epic where we have Lachlan Morton and Keegan Swenson racing. They are currently in, uh, have you been following Cape Epic at all, Spencer? No, a friend texts me sometimes the results, (laughs) but I'm trying to look them up now. Yeah. Okay. I have them in front of me and Keegan and Lachlan are currently 55 minutes behind the leaders. I was trying to get some Intel today. That surprises me. I did take a look at Keegan's training for, you know, the past several months, he's been doing really insane volume, some incredibly long rides. And he did just come off of a win at BWR Arizona. And then I have to imagine unless somebody, I don't know if you can catch a PJ to South Africa, but (laughs) that would be a pretty (laughs) penny. (laughs) So I have to imagine, I mean, Keegan is not a gigantic dude, but you know, probably how far is that flight? It's really long. Like if it's you t- a, it's like 15, 16 hours, unless you connect through Frankfurt or something, but then that's a 10 hour flight with another 10 hour flight. Yeah. So he spent some time in coach. I'm imagining after putting in a huge block of training and the months leading up to BWR Arizona, I wonder if he's like a bit overcooked at this point in time. And as always, I think the, the marketing value that, EF Easy Post is getting out of Lachlan and some of these special projects that he does is pretty incredible. But I thought they were going to do a much better than the team that they entered last year. No disrespect to Alex Howes, but Keegan Swenson is an extremely high-level mountain bike racer. That's his point of origin in the sport, and I just thought that they would be doing really well. I also thought that Nino would definitely win, and you have to put your money on Frischnick, given his father's going back yeah, to the so whole legacy theme, is that that's the son of yeah Thomas? Is that yeah. his name? Yeah, correct. Like one of the best mountain bikers of all time. Yeah, start I, of the late eighties, early nineties. I wonder if Keegan. You, I think you're right. I mean, that's a really taxing journey for him. I I don't want to like slam Lachlan Morton, but at this point, he's like a kind of an endurance not even endurance. It would, it'd be like a, he's like a touring competitive touring cyclist where he'll ride across great Britain as fast as he can. I think that's just does not leave you with a, the pop you need for a race like this. I mean, I think, this of is him a, as, I think of him as more of an artist working in the endurance sports medium. Yes. That's his, that's, his art is the efforts that he's doing. He's doing interesting adventure based things that I think inspire and motivate people. I don't think of, in no disrespect to him, he's a world-class cyclist. He's just taken things in a direction where I don't get the feeling that performing at his absolute highest level uh, in some of these events is his priority probably. Yeah, I agree. I mean, actually, we should try to track down Keegan when he gets back from South Africa and try to have him on the podcast. And I'm working on it. Ask him about this. Yeah, definitely. We'll bully him into becoming a pro cy- pro road cyclist. Yeah. How about Christopher Blevins, though, in third place there? 
Yeah, I was just. But Christopher Blevins, I get my Americans confused. He's he won a World Cup, right? And he won snow. a world. He did, and he was the short track cross country world champion. World champion, yes. Yeah, very, that's, that's like very good rider. That's yeah, top top tier in a sport that Americans do not do well in at all. Yeah, I mean, I get the vibe. Blevins definitely has a lot of pop. I mean, his twenty minute power is off the charts. That's what it takes to be a short track world champion, and he's on the World Cup. XCO, which is that's like normal distance mountain bike races, which I believe is around 90 minutes. And, you know, now he's also in the, um, he did a full pro cyclocross season domestically. And he also does a bit of gravel, but like that's not his focus. He seems like the, the kind of writer who loves mountain biking. He's produced world class results in mountain biking, which is pretty uncommon for. Americans at this point in the trajectory of the sport. And I feel like he could be like a Sepkus typewriter if he wanted to, but he's I, chosen not to do that. I agree. Yeah. I, or yeah. Or Sepkus could be him if he yeah. never raced on the road. And totally. I think he's like, he's a writer. I don't want it to be disrespectful to gravel, but like he's post, he's above gravel probably, you know, like he is truly a world-class mountain biker. If he wanted to, he could probably just come in and, absolutely smash these gravel events but yeah i guess he does doesn't want to do that with his career he wants to chase world championships and world cups and probably olympic medals in the mountain bike yeah absolutely and do you know this guy matthew beers his teammate great name i don't i think he's just like a, i think this is him he's just like a bro south african guy with the best name ever matthew yeah. beers checking him out here Obviously, okay. really good writer as well. The Cape Epic webpage is taking me to a page with no information with Matthew Beers' name. Okay. <laughs> great name. Great, great name. Great hey, name. You're, you're doing great. Cool Matthew guy. Beers, if you hear this, you're doing a great job. Keep chasing Nino. They did. I did watch the... Today was a time trial stage at the Cape Epic. And yesterday, Blevins and Beers pulled a classic mountain bike move. If you haven't watched the Cape Epic before, they're marathon-ish distance courses. And there's a lot of fire road, and then there's a bit of single track. And the finale yesterday was a long fire road climb. And then there was a choke point where they went into the single track. Blevins has a wicked sprint. Beers is a bit slower and was having a hard time. But Blevins, great strategic move, got them to the front with beers in front of him, put beers into the single track first, and then blocked everyone behind him so he could let a gap open up. And then he, with with his world-class sprinting talent, closed the gap, and then they won the race. And then the the Euros were very upset about this maneuver. Not the <laughs> spirit of the Cape Epic, I guess, but it is the spirit of winning a bike race and kicking it's everyone's ass. Funny you mentioned that because that's a genius move from Blevins. Same thing happened at San Ramo where Matteo Trenton, Pogaccio's teammate, sits about like ninth wheel when, when stuff's going down and then just kind of sits up. And then that, while it was in front of him, while it was the last rider to make the move. And people were like, 
upset about it. Like, what do you do? Like, that's just racing, man. Like, what are you doing? Like, and if you're a competitor, like Benoit Cosnefra, you shouldn't be on the wheel of Pogacar's teammate. Like you have to see right. that coming. Yeah. It's the gravelification of, of road cycling is, is happening. Andrew tactics are going to be ruled unsportsmanlike. Yeah. If you haven't been watching the Cape Epic, they have a YouTube channel. They are streaming the entire race every day. And this is pro cycling coverage the way I would love to see it. They have cameras on the riders that are transmitting live footage. It's not those, you know, two minute Velon packages at the end of the day on YouTube. They've got a helicopter following the entire race. They could throw in some drone footage that would make it a little bit better, but it's pretty world-class coverage. It's on and it's on YouTube. It's actually making me want to go do this by grace. Yeah. I, yeah. I <laughs> did the same thing and it's, it's kind of nice. Like it's three and a half hour stages for the leaders. So it obviously, obviously would be longer for us, but it's not like a total, it's kind of like a road stage race or something. It's the, right. The distances aren't completely unattainable. What's funny is with the live on board stuff, I always ask about this for road and it's just like, well, that's not possible. You know, I don't know, like the, the telco people will tell you it can't be done, but then it just seems to be happening at the Cape Epic. So clearly it is possible. Yeah. I mean, they're shorter stages than grand tour stages, but yeah, I think it's definitely possible. That's why it's happening. <laughs> yeah. Or like the drone at cross worlds where in the road, they're like, no, you can't have a drone. Uh, it just wouldn't work. Like, I don't know. It kind of seemed like it just happened at a big race. Equally in monuments and in grand tours, you're not going to see a GoPro on Pagacha or <laughs> some, <laughs> right? I mean, can you imagine yeah. one of those guys? <laughs> It'd be hilarious. Hey, I have a $10,000 skin suit, but go ahead and stick a square GoPro on my bicycle with no exposed cables. Let's do this. They do. I mean, I think Flanders, we're, we're really far in the weeds. We'll, we'll land this plane though. But like Flanders Classic is the third race organizer and their big race is Tour Flanders. If you, when you watch it next weekend, like they do crane shots and stuff. I mean, they're definitely the most advanced um, organizer in terms of like delivering a nice video product. And I think that probably could be copied by RCS and ASO if they really wanted to spend the money. Yeah, if you can find videos from Sporza on YouTube of Belgian races, they're incredible. You're right. They have Hollywood style, like old Hollywood style. Hollywood's <laughs> yeah. now using drones, but there are these massive booms that they're using to do these beautiful tracking shots through corners. I mean, both on cyclocross courses as well as at Flanders and other races. Yeah, it's like Cecil Debum. D DeMille up B DeMille up on like the top of a boom being carried along with like a big uh, megaphone. That's what you expect to see with those booms. It's pretty good. All right. Well, thanks, Andrew, for joining us. And do you have anything else to add before we take off? I just want to hear from more people on Twitter. What do you want to hear us cover? What would you like to hear us talk about? Are there any other races that we're missing? Is there anybody that you would like for us to interview? You can holler at me at hardway pod you can reach spencer at btp cycling if you reach my voicemail just leave a message at the tone all right well thanks everyone and we'll be back next week <laughs>